0: Let me welcome you back to our last paper uh, of the 2021 Theological Symposium. Prior to lunch, we have plenty more papers to come, uh, but we're going to let you eat after this one. Uh, this one's a little different. Um, I'm not sure that we've 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 had an opportunity to do this before, so a few words of explanation are in order. The paper that's about to be read uh, is has been put together. Uh, Based on several notes and components of presentations that Brother Leroy Fourlines uh, had put together, some of it, uh, if you were here in 2016, you've seen bits and pieces of it. Um, but uh, Mr. Hunter uh, has has put together uh, some of has done some editing of these, and this paper is going to be presented by Miss Anna Fourlines. Uh, brother Leroy Forlines is a founding member of the commission for theological integrity and longtime uh, commissioner and chair of the commission he together with Dr. Fay Forlines' his wife and uh, Dr. Robert Pickerilly uh, are the reason we all gather together for an annual symposium that idea was birthed uh, around homes, around meals, uh, and it's a wonderful thing that we all continue to benefit uh, from today. Brother Fourlines, as you all know, passed away on December the 15th, 2020, uh, and he's greatly missed. Um, We're privileged to have with us today several members of his family. We have his wife, Dr. Faye Fourlines, uh, his granddaughter, uh, Miss Anna Fourlines. We have his son and and, uh, his wife, uh, Dr. John and Susan Forlines with us as well. Have I left anyone out? I uh, don't think so. Um, <clears throat> this paper is drawn in many respects out of several studies that Brother Forlines did, both in preparation for his uh, Romans commentary and in thinking that he did uh, related to projects that grew out from that. I recall uh, some serious Concerns that he had about some of the things he was seeing in certain forms of dispensational premillennialism, especially as it related to uh, some aspects of of their eschatological understanding of the relationship between Israel and the church. And I think some of that uh, is hinted at in this presentation as well. So. Please listen attentively uh, as Ms. Fourlines, Ms. Anna Fourlines, comes and reads this. Anna is a graduate of Welch College, uh, is presently uh, part of the Master of Arts in Theology Ministry program uh, at Welch College. Uh, she has been actively engaged in youth and women's ministry and sees a future in that. She's about to go to Hidalgo. Uh, Mexico, where she will be working to minister to international rock climbers, so uh, proclaiming the gospel there in that setting. So it's very exciting. Please welcome with me Miss Anna Fourlines.
1: Hello, um, as Dr. Hestry said, my name is Anna Fourlines. I am the granddaughter and the youngest grandchild of um, Leroy Fourlines, um, Leroy and Faye Fourlines. Uh, My grandfather, he went home uh, to glory in December of last year. Um, My grandmother is here today with us and I'm so thankful for that um, in honor of his legacy. Um, I would like to thank my grandmother for um, giving me this opportunity um, and uh, being the brains behind this opportunity um, and I would like to thank Welch College for um, allowing me to present on uh, my grandfather's behalf. And um, I am, as Dr. Hester said again, currently finishing up my master's in ministry and theology from Welch College. And um, the Lord has opened the opportunity for me to go to Mexico as a missionary to rock climbers. And that begins in December. Um, I'm honored to follow the Lord's leading uh, in ministry as he guides every step. Um, by his grace, walking in everyday faithfulness. Um, my grandfather, he was a light and an example of taking seriously the service of God's word. Um, and this paper of his that I will be reading will shed light to this fact as we read his words of meditation on the Abrahamic covenant and the church. Has God cast away Israel? The Abrahamic covenant and the church by F. Leroy four lines. In the calendar years of 1952 and 1953, I was pastoring the Free Will Baptist Church of Warwick, Virginia, more likely to be remembered as Newport News, Virginia. As I recall one Sunday afternoon, I was reading the fourth chapter of the Book of Romans in the KJV, which reads, What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. Romans 4, 1 through 2. The first two verses of chapter 4 caught my attention. A question popped into my mind. Why did Paul not say, what had Enoch found, or what did Noah find? They were both chronologically before Abraham. It took me a while to find out, in the fall of 1953... I joined the faculty at Free Will Baptist Bible College. I had been employed to teach extension schools in Free Will Baptist churches, however, due to some resignations at the college that summer, I was called on to teach evangelism and to serve as dean of men along with my extension courses. Later on, I was given the responsibility of teaching Romans and Galatians. As I made my way through Romans and Galatians, I was confronted with the fact that my interpretation of the Abrahamic covenant put me in conflict with what I had been hearing from others as it was applied to the relationship between Israel and the church. Paul's question. In Romans 11, 1 through 2, Paul said, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Here Paul raises the question, has God cast away his people? In the last part of the verse, Paul makes it clear that God's people mentioned in the question are those who are Israelites in the flesh. This being true, the question could read, has God cast away Israel? A popular interpretation of the apostles' question is, did God cast them away forever? The conclusion generally reached is that Israel has been cast away but this is only temporary. It is my opinion that the word forever is an unjustifiable addition to the apostle's question. When Paul denied the implication of the question, instead of saying that Israel had not been cast off forever, he simply answered that Israel has not been cast away. This he proved by citing himself, Romans 11.1, 1, and the believing remnant, Romans 11.5, as present proof that God had not cast Israel away. Therefore, it seems to me that Paul had said to the church at Rome that God had not cast Israel away. That put me at odds with all that I had heard before. Now, let me share with you how I went about handling these two verses in my Romans classes. I would read Romans 11, 1 through 2 to the class. Then I would say to the class, Is it fair to say that Paul raised the question, Has God cast Israel away? Over a period of more than 50 years, they have always said yes. Then I would read verse 2. God hath not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Then I asked them, how did Paul answer the question? They have always responded that Paul said, no, God has not cast Israel away. I have followed the same approach while teaching in Russia. It has always been consistent. Does that mean that all of these students fell in line with my view? At that time, the tendency of most amillennialists was to take the position that Israel had been cast away and that God was through with them as the covenant seed of Abraham. Due to the majority rejection of Christ in, in Israel, there was a final rejection of Israel. They ceased to be the covenant people of God, and the church takes the place of Israel and becomes the covenant people. Advocates of what is called historic premillennialism would also view the church to be Israel. It seems that they would say that God used Israel in the Old Testament to prepare the way for the church. Some way the church became Israel in connection with the new covenant, which was established by Christ. Many who hold to this view would believe that Israel would be gathered back to Palestine during the millennium. This view on the millennium is shared by dispensational pre-millennialists who believe that when the nation of Israel rejected Jesus as the Messiah, that God rejected them. But in the last days, the actual seed of Abraham would return to God. They would embrace Jesus as the Jewish Messiah and would be returned to the land of Canaan, where Jesus would reign on the throne of David as the true Messiah for a thousand years. In each of these views, they seem to believe that Israel has indeed been cast away. I have not heard of any school of thought that has developed the view that God has not cast Israel away. Have you heard of such a school of thought gaining a following? I have found where some got close to my view, but they all fell short of my position. There was a song some years ago about a young boy whose father took him to the zoo. As they worked their way through the zoo, he cried out, Look there, Daddy, don't you see? There is a horse in striped pajamas. The father replied, No. That isn't a horse at all. That's an animal people call a zebra. The son responded, oh, I see. But it still looks like a horse in striped pajamas to me. My response is that in Romans 11, one through two, it still looks like God has not cast Israel away to me. I am with the young boy. It still looks like a horse in striped pajamas to me. The Abrahamic covenant, a covenant. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 3.15 speaks with great clarity about the fact that a covenant, even though it be but a man's covenant, can neither be altered or nullified. Paul explains, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. In Genesis 13.14-15, through 15, God makes the following promise to Abraham and his seed. It reads, And the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. That means that the promise made in Genesis thirteen, fifteen cannot fail to come to pass. It will take a lot of good research and clear thinking to work your way through how all of this finds fulfillment, but you do not need to do a lot of research to conclude that it will find fulfillment. After a quick look at Romans 11, 1 through 2, if God had cast Israel away, that would have nullified the covenant that he made with Abraham. You do not need to be deeply involved in research to decide that God had not cast Israel away. It will take some time to harmonize much of what you read in the Bible with the viewpoint that I am setting forth, but it is the only way that you can fit all that you read in the Old Testament about Israel, the confirmation of the Abrahamic covenant. Listen to the admonition and encouragement that the writer of Hebrews gives to his readers and contemplate as the author pulls things together. But beloved... We are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your works and the love which you have shown towards his name and having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith In the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness, immutability of his promise, interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable, immutable things in which it is possible for God to, to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 6:9 9-20. The writers of Hebrews was harking back to a quotation from Genesis 22. After Abraham had obeyed God in sacrificing Isaac, the scripture states, then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your, your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Get this, the great I Am took an oath, and because there was no greater, he swore by himself, that by two unchangeable, immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Hebrews 6.18, the identity of the seed of Abraham. The question now remains, who is the seed of Abraham? In the Old Testament, Old Covenant, the word for seed is Zira, and it is singular. In the Septuagint, the Greek word for seed is sperma, and it is singular. Today, in English, we might have translated them sperm, but it appears semen is probably the best way to translate zirah and sperma. I take it that this covenant embraces all that are considered to be the seed of Abraham, the verse in Genesis that calls for our attention is Genesis 22:18, 18, which reads, In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. This calls for a discussion of which of the following terms should be used, seed, offspring, or descendants. The term was almost universally called the seed of Abraham, until the appearance of so many new translations since then there has been almost a complete exodus from the use of abraham's seed this move has manifested itself in a preference for either abraham's descendants or the offspring of abraham i must say that emotionally i have always had a strong preference for the term the seed of abraham however i have acknowledged the validity of the other translations As I have gone through this research, I am doing some rethinking and I'm giving serious thought to a preference for the seed of Abraham. When you think your way through the meaning of Abraham's seed in Genesis, the first thought should go to the fact that Abraham's seed is Abraham's semen. It is that connection between Abraham's descendants and the semen of Abraham that establishes the connection with Abraham. Well, I think we should talk about Abraham's seed between the terms Abraham's descendants and Abraham's offspring, I think that the term Abraham's offspring might reflect more of an attempt to hark back to the seed of Abraham or the semen of Abraham. Probably the most intriguing verses in the Bible about the seed of Abraham is in Galatians 3.16, which reads, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to the seeds as referring to many but rather to one and to your seed that is christ i am inclined to believe that we do not need to get involved in mental gymnastics to try to understand what paul was saying in galatians 3:16. paul was using his apostolic authority to clarify that jesus christ was the true heir through whom and in whom we will receive our inheritance as heirs of Abraham's seed. It was only after the appearance of Jesus Christ that it would become evident that he was that true seed or semen of Abraham. In Romans 8:16 through 17, Paul tells us the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Jesus Christ is the true heir and we are joint heirs with him. No wonder Paul bursts forth with the words of Romans eight eighteen. for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The Unchangeable Promises of the Abrahamic Covenant. I need to point out that when you work your way through the Abrahamic Covenant, that the focus of this covenant is on the eternal state. Nothing is said about a thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. That issue will have to be dealt outside of the redemptive covenants. I was hoping to use some more recent versions in working my way through these immutable promises, but I'm having to use the KJV since I have concluded that the word seed, at least in Genesis, helps us to get at the intent of what God is telling us. In Genesis 13:14 through 15, we read of one of these immutable promises that God made to Abraham. And the Lord said unto Abram, after that lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land which thou seest to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. God is telling us that he is promising to Abraham and his seed the land the land of Canaan as an eternal inheritance that cannot not happen. The eternal abode of God's people will be on a renovated earth. That will be the way that Abraham and his seed will experience the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham and his seed. True believers will be there. The formality of the covenant took place in Genesis fifteen eighteen through 19. In the KJV, it reads, In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kinezites, and the Cadmonites. This cannot not come to pass. We are the beneficiaries of the promise of Genesis 22. And that promise cannot fail to come to pass. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abram, Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, by myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. Genesis twenty-two fifteen through 18. A pruning of the olive tree. If it is affirmed that Israel has not been cast away, how does one interpret Paul's implication that Israel had stumbled? His reference to their being cast away and the breaking off of the branches. The answer is Paul was speaking of the unbelieving part of Israel, not all of Israel. It is true that this constituted the larger part of Israel. But it is also true that it constituted only a part. Now, the problem is raised. Can the larger part of Israel be cast away? And it still be said that Israel has not been cast away? A simple way of answering Paul's question. Has God cast away his people? So as to avoid this difficulty would it be to say that he has partially, but not all the way. However, Paul did not say that. He negated the whole question. Another way would be to make Paul's statement refer to believers, Jews and Gentiles alike. If this be true, why did Paul mention the fact that he was an Israelite in the flesh as a proof of his denial that God had cast away his people? Another way would be to say that God had not cast away the believing Israelites. That would be true as a statement of fact, but the whole proposition would be meaningless because it would go without saying. The thing that Paul is saying is that even though the larger part of Israel rejected Christ and because of this were unsaved, which he had already implied in chapters 9 and 10, this did not mean that God had cast Israel away. It is necessary at this point to show what Paul meant on the one hand when he denied that God had cast Israel away and the other hand when he affirmed that the larger part of Israel had been broken off or cast away when Paul said that God had not cast Israel away he meant that God had not ceased to work in Israel he was at the time working among Israelites in the flesh to maintain a remnant of true believers of course it is true that many Israelites were not saved. However, Paul makes it clear in chapter 9 that the fact that there are unsaved Israelites does not void the promises of God. In 9, 1-3, through 3, he expresses his compassion for his unbelieving kinsmen, according to the flesh, but in verse 6, states that it is not as though the word of God has failed. I take it that he meant... That the presence of unsaved Israelites did not mean that the the promises of God were ineffective. He proved this by pointing out that not all Israel, physical Israel, were of Israel. The true Israel who had actually received the promises. As long as there is a remnant of believers among the physical Israelites, it cannot be said that God has cast Israel off. Because the very presence of the remnant is a proof that God has not cast them away. Another proof that God has not cast away Israel is found in the fact that the unfulfilled promises are still assured to Israel. Paul makes this clear by stating that this blindness in part to Israel is only temporary and that the time will come when all Israel will be saved. Then the ultimate promises to Israel will be fulfilled, Romans eleven twenty five through 26. When Paul says that God has not cast Israel away, he means that God is still dealing with the Israelites to get them saved, and that ultimately all of the promises of God to Israel will be fulfilled. Now, the question, what did Paul mean when he said that the larger part of Israel had been cast away or broken off? It is true that these were lost. However, it is also true that since the calling of the nation into existence, all unbelieving Israelites had been lost. Since the appearing of Christ something had happened to physical Israel in regards to the unbelieving Israelites that was different from what had been before. As I see it, this is what happened. Using the olive tree as a figure of Israel, as Paul does in verses 17 through 24, prior to the coming of Christ, outwardly, the unbelieving branches remained in with the believing branches, The nation was viewed as a whole without any outward division of believers and unbelievers. After Christ came, there was a pruning of the olive tree. The unbelieving branches were trimmed off while believing branches remained. The unbelieving rejected Christ and remained with Judaism. There is no longer a mingling of the believers and unbelievers. The true Israelites stand out distinct from the unbelieving. This was not true until after Christ. Israel has not been cast away, but there has been a pruning of the olive tree. The relationship of Israelites and Gentiles today. If we stop by pointing out that Israel has not been cast away, we would fail to point out the significance of this view. The real problem is is there any significance to the fact that Israel has not been cast away? Is there any importance attached to the believing remnant of physical Israel? It is my conviction that there is some present importance attached to the believing remnant. It will be noted that Romans eleven fourteen speaks of an olive tree. This olive tree has had some of its branches broken off, and some branches from the wild olive tree have been grafted in the tree now has some natural branches and some branches that have been grafted in. As I see it, the olive tree is Israel. The natural branches are the individual members of the believing remnant of Israel. The grafted in branches are believing Gentiles. Actually, what has happened is the believing Gentiles have been grafted in with the believing Israelites. Thus, Israel is now made up of believing Israelites who are Israelites by physical descent and believing Gentiles. In this olive tree, physical Israelites are naturally a part of Israel, while believing Gentiles are Israelites by identification. Paul is developing the same line of thought in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Notice how Paul describes the past condition of the Gentiles as Aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, verse 12. Now, notice how he describes the present condition of the Gentiles. Brought near by the blood of Christ, verse 13. One with Israel in one body, verses 14 through 15. No longer strangers and foreigners, verse 19. Fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, verse 19. The idea is often expressed that when an Israelite in the flesh receives Christ, he becomes identified with the believing Gentiles rather than the believing Gentiles becoming identified with the believing Israelites. However, as I see it, the reverse is true. In Ephesians two eleven through 22, Paul is contrasting the Gentiles' relationships with Israel now with what it had been in the past. In the past, they were alienated from Israel. They were not a partaker with Israel of the promises. Now, by the blood of Christ, this condition has been changed. They are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the household of God, which is Israel, and partakers of the same body. As I see it, this is the sum of the matter God made a covenant with Abraham and promised certain things to him and his seed. Throughout the Old Testament, there was a progressive unveiling of these promises. These promises were made to Israel in the flesh, but only as they would become believers. Before the coming of Christ, it was possible for a Gentile to be saved, but there was never a program of aggressive evangelism directed toward them. After Christ came... There was a definite cleavage between the believing and unbelieving Israelites. True Israel now stands distinct from the unbelieving Israelites. The believing Israelites make up the nucleus of the church. In obedience to the command of Christ, there was an aggressive program of evangelism set up, which was to include the conversion of the Gentiles in its aim. The Gentiles, who believe are grafted into Israel and are now partaking of the salvation promised to them. Actually, the promise of salvation is a promise made to Israelites, but through Christ a Gentile can become an Israelite positionally. However, the Gentiles are supposed to remember that they did not bear the root Israel, but the root Israel bore the Gentiles, Romans eleven eighteen. This verse is saying the same thing that Jesus said in John 4.22. Salvation is of the Jews. It is a promise to the Jews that we Gentiles share in by our identification with Christ, which makes us Jews. We are partakers of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Romans 11.17 It is really more proper to say the Gentiles are saved the same way Jews are then to say Jews are saved the same way Gentiles are. The bringing of the Gentiles in with the Israelites during this age in no way affects the promises that God has made to physical Israel. The promise that God will at some time in the future bring all Israelites in the flesh, the then living ones, into a saving relationship with himself, will come to pass, Romans eleven twenty five through 27 Also, all of the accompanying promises will come to pass, just as God has promised them. I trust that if this paper contains basic errors, that no one has been confused by it, but whatever truth it contains, I trust will contribute to our understanding of the subject. I do not expect you to believe this because I have said it, but if you believe that what I have shared with you is a proper explanation to what the scripture is saying. I do expect to hear from some of you in the public forum. If you believe that I have not made my case, I expect to hear from it in the public forum if you are not convinced by what I have said here today. Stand by your integrity.
0: I foresee what happens at this point is a discussion of some of the more salient points uh, from this presentation. Um, I think that the overall thesis need not divide uh, some different eschatological perspectives. Uh, I do think. One of the clear pieces of information that Brother Fourlines is really trying to bring before us at this moment is the idea of there being one program of salvation uh, that unites both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that's the program of salvation in Christ, uh, who is the fulfillment of the promises that were made. Um, And the way in which um, we understand the church and Israel as being the vehicle of that salvation there's some wonderful images that are used uh, the paper here represents the concept of, of the olive tree uh, clearly for us that the Apostle Paul used um, then the passage in, or the passage in Ephesians 2 plays on the concept of the temple uh, as well as as the people of God. Um, Ultimately, and, and that people of god is is the is i think an operative phrase that we should think about Israel the man of god and the laos to theu that shows up uh, in 1st Peter 2:10 certainly seems first that Peter has been reading uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians there bringing up several images as well but his use of the word laos to theu the people of god uh, a Septuagint phrase that would have been easily recognizable, uh, often identified with the pe- people of Israel. Uh, so it seems that, that the basic perspective is that the church doesn't replace Israel, if you will. Rather, the church is Israel. Just sort of thinking of the church and Israel together as a program of redemption. So I just thought I'd throw that out there and and, and uh, y'all can tell me how I'm wrong. Um, Reflections on any of the material that that has been presented.
2: I would just by way of general comment on the subject. I've observed, and I think this is partly owing to the popularity of popular teaching and preaching. and Books on these subjects. We find that many... Members in our congregations um, have a very difficult time making the sense of the modern state of Israel mm-hmm. and what an Israeli is mm-hmm. versus what an Israelite is. Mm-hmm. And it seems very elementary to some of us, but it, it comes as a big surprise to many people that a massive percentage of people who reside in the modern state of Israel are not ethnically Jewish nor religiously Jewish. Mm-hmm. And so that is a point that seems to be eye-opening for many people. And I think that sometimes teaching on these things, it almost, you almost have to clear the debris field of some of those kind of misconceptions before you actually get into scripture. And people hear Israel in scriptural terms as opposed to Israel as they heard it on television or by some sort of popular preacher who has a radio program that they listen to. So that's just more of an observation. I don't know if other people find that to be the case. I, I count
3: that quite often. Well, Kevin, um just add, maybe add or whatever, clarify a little bit in terms of what you were saying, <coughs> which I thought was a good summary. you <coughs> I was concerned about several things, but <coughs> one of the things you should take from this is that he was denying basic dispensational theology. That, that's very clear. That, that was always true <laughs> once he got started along this line. The other thing that he was really emphasizing is that the church and Israel are not two bodies, they're the same body. And it is Israel. We have become part of Israel. Uh, we Gentiles, believing Gentiles in this age, what we call the church age. We have been we have become part of Israel and thus heirs of Abraham mm-hmm. and heirs of the Abrahamic covenant in that regard. Mm-hmm. He did not work out, mm-hmm. as far as I know, he did not work out eschatological right. details of the implications of all of that. Um, but uh, those were his main concerns, I think, just, mm-hmm. just to stress that.
0: I will say... Uh, one of the major concerns he expressed to me falls along these same lines and it was this, the idea that's current in some dispensational circles that that Israelites are saved by virtue of being Israelites. So that there are two modes of salvation, if you will. And that was something that he clearly believed was unbiblical and uh, roundly rejected that concept. Salvation, in this age, is, and in all ages, has always been through Christ. Um, so, excellent point. Thank you for that, Dr. Piccirilli. Mr. This Brace. is just an
2: observation, but the, the language of grafting in with Dr. Picarelli's mention of inheritance, this fits together well with the concept of uh, theology of adoption that we see throughout the epistles as well. The idea that we as Gentiles are adopted into the family of God and receive the benefits as if we are heirs
4: so on and so forth. But it, it, it works with that. That imagery
0: works with that. Absolutely. and I think the focus of the, the terms there uh, as it relates to the sperma, uh, the seed of Abraham, uh, it, the, the New Testament authors seem to treat these these concepts of seed of Abraham, children of God interchangeably. Uh allows it's, it's, to yes, adoption you have in Ephesians yes. <clears throat> it's there. Absolutely.
5: He said that if you agree with it, you should say something. So I guess I need to say something. Um, but uh, I, I appreciate this this paper. Um, but like I, I've been as a missionary, I think a lot about the Great Commission, and I think about the movement from the Jewish people to the Gentile people. I mean, we're obviously we're going out as an extension and a continuation of trying to take the gospel to unreached people mm-hmm. in the world. Um, but looking back. So the two ver- or two passages in Scripture that have just made a, a tremendous impact on me in developing sort of a, a missiology or actually kind of coming alongside the mission of God in the world are uh, Isaiah 49, verses 5 and 6, uh, where the Lord is talking about his servant Jesus. And uh, he says, he's talking about how Jesus is glorious. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. And then uh, in verse 6, and he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldst be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that, that, that thou mayest be my salvation until unto the ends of the earth. So he's saying that it's a light thing. So Jesus' glory is that magnificent mm. and amazing. And God's purpose from the very beginning has always been to share the glory of Jesus and to make Jesus glorious in all of the world. Mm. Um, so, but that that verse is quoted as the gospel is going out in Acts chapter thirteen. Paul, Barnabas, and um, Antioch uh, of Pisidia are in the synagogue teaching, sharing the gospel. And then they go out, the Gentiles say, hey, come back to us the next day and teach us what you've been teaching there. So then they they go back the next day. Uh, This is Acts 13, verses 44 through 49. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should first... Have been spoken to you, but seeing you put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldst be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained of eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. And if you just kind of look at that in a snapshot, it kind of sounds very harsh, like a harsh turn from the Jewish people to the Gentiles. Um, and then after that, the Jews there stirred up the devout and honorable women, and they raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and pushed them out. And But then you see right in the next chapter in Acts 14, in Iconium, Paul and Barnabas together went into the synagogue of the Jews again, They went right back to the Jewish people and they spake. And behold, a multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Greeks, believed, but the unbelieving Jews. It says the unbelieving Jews. This is in the KJV. This is Acts 14, verse 2. The unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil, affected against the brethren. So there seems to be that distinction that, that is even here in the text between the believing Jews and the unbelieving Jews. Um, as the gospel is moving out and going forward making Jesus glorious to the nations um, I, I think that I have to say something mm. that I agree with mm. what
0: yeah. I think Israel as true Israel they're you know not all Israel is Israel uh, so that that's uh, something important to remember and I think that's clearly the reference that you're making good Mr. Crow? Uh, question uh, perhaps maybe I. Uh, um, when, when, on 51, when the, the views of
4: amillennialists, he said they were taking the position that Israel had been cast away and that God was through with them as the covenant seed. And so, um, and due to the majority rejection of Christ in Israel, there was a final rejection of Israel. So, is that still the case for amillennialists? Uh, I mean, did they they see the church as the replacement of Israel? I don't know. I mean, mean, maybe it once was. I don't know. These things progress, so maybe.
0: The apologetic nature of the debate is sometimes not helpful to clear definitions.
4: Um. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, I mean, you know, that's kind of why I asked that question, because...
0: Yeah, you know, obviously the accusation is, always, I don't know why I'm answering questions, this is my favorite No, I think you're, you're right. right. Yeah, I, yeah <laughs> the accusation has always been coming from, from sort of in an apologetic tone that that's a replacement theology, but that's not the way it's understood in an omillennial circle. Um, it, it, it's an identification, it's a one program of redemption, That's what I would think. be my yeah, understanding. Fair, fair statement?
4: Yeah. I think uh, Romans 9-11, uh, the center of the structure of that text is um, chapter 10, and then specifically verses 9-13, where Paul says there is no diastole, mm-hmm. There's no distinction, which echoes... Three, sure. twenty-two, and twenty-three. There's no distinction. All of sin. There's no distinction. If you're going to come to mm-hmm. salvation, it's going to be through, through confessing Christ as Lord and uh, believing that God raises the dead. Everyone's going to be saved in the same way. Sure. Yeah. And I, you I mean, uh, oh, I'm I'm, I'm a millennial. I I waffle back and forth between that and historic pre-millennialism. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Over the years, I have sort of come to develop a hope and an expectation that Mm -hmm. posse Israel, Mm -hmm. um, and Paul is concerned there with his kinsmen according to the flesh, that there will be at the end a turning of ethnic Israel to the Messiah. I kind of hold out that hope. I I honestly
0: think you're absolutely right. I honestly think that one sentence there. That references romans eleven twenty five through twenty seven. That's really the only major the only thing I think in this presentation that there would be there could be serious difference of opinion between someone who was more amillennial or someone who was from a historical premillennial standpoint. <laughs> uh, that the way in which that's understood. Uh, the other reference uh, is eschatologically fulfilled in, uh, you know, could be, under, could be construed to be eschatologically fulfilled uh, with the land promise specifically that's mentioned in this paper either in an eternal state or in a millennium however you wish to understand. I, I, I don't think anyone would, would necessarily have a problem with that. that the one issue uh, would be that and perhaps uh, that would be a good thing for us to look at in the future uh, having a, a couple of different people with different perspectives presenting on uh, that last piece of Romans 11. Um, I think it could, could lead to some growth. Critical. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Save me <laughs> from myself.
2: <laughs> <laughs> A thought that doesn't have anything to do with eschatology, nor there's, there's much
3: um, the, much depth to it either, but, but there's something on there at the bottom of page 51, there, there's something very um, akin to,
2: to the sort of thought patterns of C.S. Lewis. Not so much in his willingness to use this fanciful song about the horse with the striped and mm, dogs, but mm. the but more so his willingness to identify with the child and say, I'm, yes. "I'm with the, I'm with the boy." It
3: still looks like a horse and, and strike the jammers to me. I, yes. I, I, just, I think that's the
0: Absolutely. I,
3: I thought he was going to steal my thunder, but I, I have to again since some of my favorite dispensationalism has been beat up on. Um, so we're
1: all confessing here but uh, I, I just have to say man the fact that the
3: track down the captain kangaroo song mm-hmm. warmed my heart instantly uh, in this paper if you look in the footnotes so thank you for that extra effort in all seriousness i appreciate this so much and the work that's been done in the past because we're still dealing with anti-semitism
0: mm, yes some of
3: it is robed in a cross Christian flag, it's true. And, and, and that is just so horrendous. And, and this is absolutely applicable to now that God has not done, and has not cast away, and we should not
0: stand mm-hmm. shoulder to shoulder with people who are just, enough, whether, whether Israeli or Israelite, either Or um, there's no
3: room for this. And the church should be absolutely appalled by what's going on, even today. So, so because of
0: passage like
4: this, I'm very thankful. Very mm. so, good. I was going to say, I, I really enjoyed um, this, this paper, <coughs> ultimately the scripture,
2: uh, and I think it ultimately leads me to two things. Praise of God mm. for grafting us in. Absolutely. Uh,
0: and like love for people, both Jewish and non, um, that they would all come to, mm. to be a part of the, the olive tree of Israel. Please also. Yes. Absolutely. Yes, sir.
2: I agree with the, the view that uh, Gentiles were incorporated into Israel. It just begs the question as to why the apostles use the term church mm. to refer to both Gentiles and Jews. What's, yes. what's the intent there in terms of using two different, potentially
4: two synonymous terms, but that on their face are not?
0: There's a lot of debate between how what what is meant by the term ecclesia, uh, the gathered community of faith. What's entailed in that? How is that related to the gathered assembly, uh, in that, that shows up in the Old Testament? Um, I would tend to see them as as generally. Um, I would cons- I would typically consider ecclesia just to be the, the New Testament usage of, of the term. Is Kahal? Uh, somebody can help me. Okay. The assembly. My, my Hebrew is a little rusty. Um, but uh, I, I would tend to, to see them as, as being sort of a New Testament description of the people of God and therefore synonymous. Not everyone does. Uh, so obviously similar. there's a debate.
4: Maybe it's similar to when, for example,
2: you're talking about a pastor yes. and there are different terms for the same office that have different emphases. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, maybe that's the explanation. Yeah, more, whether it's a more Jewish a bit of Ross community, or you're looking at, at a more Gentile Episcopal uh, community, at least that's my reading, and you know, again, a lot of debate over that, but good questions, good comments. Let's uh, think about these over lunch. Uh, let's pray before we do. Our Father, we ask that you would send us out in your grace and in your peace, protect us. We thank you for the life and the ministry and the work of Brother Four Alliance. For the example that he gave, for his clarity of thought, for his heart for you. Uh, We pray that you would help us all to seek diligently to know your truth because you sanctify us through your truth. We pray that you would uh, keep us safe and we bring you honor and glory because you have called us who were not a people to yourself. Uh, you have made us into a royal priesthood and a holy nation, uh, sanctified through the blood of Your Son. And for this, make us ever grateful. And may You have all the honor and glory for that. Send us out in Your peace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We will join together again at 2.05. So, don't be late.
1: I just hope I didn't mess anything up. I'm like, man, this is a firebrand.